Phoenix Overlook Pop Culture. And welcome back, Curtis. It's been a while, hasn't it? It has. Um, episode 93. Um, last two episodes we talked about uh, comparing and contrasting you know, the stationary type of gaming, video gaming, whether it's console or computer versus, you know, mobile device like your phone or your tablet. And we, Shaggy and I had different experiences. Bioshock, WWE Immortals, and then the next episode, um, Kingdoms of Amalur with Final Fantasy III being the port of it, which turns out it was the it was an updated version of the DS port from um, years ago. So very, very interesting. But um, Curtis has a different perspective on mobile gaming, and some of it is, you know, echoes a lot of frustrations with video games nowadays. Um, <laughs> and we ask the question, is this... is is mobile gaming a blight on the landscape of gaming? Is it necessarily a bad thing, though, at the same time? Um, could history be repeating itself like the mid-'80s? So <laughs> um, let's get into it. You, you, you both have experience with consoles, PCs, etc. Um, and clearly... Favor, more favorable towards those than a smartphone or a tablet, uh, um, which I understand why. So, so Curtis, um, yeah, you're when you first encountered, you know, iOS, Android, you know, you know, popular small-time games start coming out on that. Um, did you have an opinion on that, or was it? more developed later on? Uh, my opinion actually didn't really develop until last year uh, on the state of mobile gaming. You know, I'm not opposed to mobile games existing because why would I be opposed to anyone having access to gaming, you know, or something like that. What I'm opposed to is the god-awful business models that it has spawned. <laughs> People may be familiar with the travesty that is Dungeon Keeper Mobile. Um, you know, we've had that um, platform, I guess you would call it, of, of a business model has started to slowly creep its way into consoles first, but it's even now getting into Steam and getting into PC gaming. And uh, that is the part I'm very opposed to. Um, are you talking about, like, microtransactions... Exactly. I'm talking about microtransactions. I'm also talking about day one DLC, and I'm talking about uh, pre-order culture, which has uh, recently spawned something that made me cry, for those of you who might be familiar with Deus Ex. Oh, uh, <laughs> the, the, newest, um, the newest Deus Ex game is called Mankind Divided. I believe it comes out next March or May, sometime in there. But basically, the way the pre-order works for it is, is it's Tiered. There are five tiers. The oh, first God. one is some skins. Uh, the second one, I think, is a is a different gun. 
Um, the third one has uh, many different kinds of uh, missions, I think, that are added in. But what's really frightening is the fifth tier, which if uh, – back up for a second before I get to that. The way the tiers work is, is that if a certain number of, number of people pre-order the game, then you go to tier one and tier two, and they just keep – whatever number uh, Eidos has um, set – arbitrarily is the number that it takes to get to the next tier. If you get to tier five, the game unlocks four days early for people who have pre-ordered it. So basically what they're doing is they're asking you to pay full price money for a video game that hasn't come out yet, that you're not going to even get till 2016. You haven't seen any footage from it. And then they want you to get all your friends to pre-order it too. Minus the E3 trailer, of course. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. How you know, long I mean, was the E3 trailer? Like two, three minutes? Yeah, it was two, three minutes long. It was beautiful. It was. I, I, they already had me there, but I don't think I'll pre-order it. Good I mean, on, on, on this side of things, uh, I don't think there's any reason to pre-order games anymore, in my opinion. There used to be an argument back in the day for fans of, uh, like, Atlas, which is a Japanese game developer that doesn't put out a lot of copies in the United States of their games because they have more of a cult following, but even now, Atlas does digital copies. And in the modern digital world, there's absolutely no reason to pre-order a game. Companies want you to pre-order a game so they can fluff their sales numbers. So that's one of the business practices. We talked about microtransactions. We can talk more about that if you'd like. Um, so basically, um, the pre-ordering thing and I, I've noticed the, the trend of where we've talked about this before where you know last the, I think last year and even this year video gaming has kind of it was blah too um, I think we talked about that at the end of uh, 2014 we did a 2014 gaming roundup if I'm not mistaken if, and, if Remember, last year's E3 was so boring that most people fell asleep during most of the conferences there, as compared to this year, where we actually got to see the first of the new generation console games that are that are developed exclusively for, for PS4 and Xbox One, and then a whole host of new uh, content coming out on PC and so on. Um, but if you'll remember about pre-ordering games. Remember, Evolve had pre-ordered DLC announced before the game had even been announced. <laughs> and you look at that game now, I think last time I looked, there's like 430 players live on Steam. Wow. Yeah, because it was just... Left 2 has more than that, and that game has been out since, what, 2010, 2011? Yeah. <laughs> um, but go ahead. But... And you mentioned DLC, which is interesting because every time I've, you know, there have been times where I've seen ads for, say, you know, various WWE 2K games where if you order it now, you'll get an ex you'll get a character exclusively. Um, and the individuals like CM Punk, um, Stone Cold Steve Austin now, uh, Sting, for, um, it's Ultimate Warrior. Um, and you know, kind of concerning to me, um, with, with the whole Kogan scandal coming out, and they decide, oh, we're gonna erase all these things, all the references to him, right? 
Um, the whole DLC, which can affect DLC in various games as well, that I can see the concern there too. Um, but the microtransactions, especially, which I've been I've been guilty of, <laughs> like I need some immortal credits so I can enhance my characters. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, that's that's the design of the entire scheme of the microtransaction bullshit that exists. Right, there, you get people like you, or, and I fall I've fallen to the same crap too. Like a uh, couple of different mobile games. Like I mean, yeah, it's just it's just a dollar. Just pay a dollar, you get this much stuff. You can buy some exclusive stuff in the game to amp up your production or whatever it is for your game, and then we'll be. <laughs> I mean, it's just that, that's the unfortunate part is because it's so easy for you to go, like, oh, I don't want to wait five minutes for this building to be done. I'll just pay for it to be done. Or I, I, I'm having really a hard time attacking this other clan. Let's get a boost. <laughs> right. It's you know, it's like taking a um, a page right out of the Zynga playbook. If you remember Zynga Games, which started on Facebook six or seven years ago. You know, a lot of those games were free to play, and there was no money involved in them. But you had to, you had a certain number of moves. I remember Steve and I used to play a mafia game of some kind, you know, in our off time. And um, you know, you, you had 12 moves a day or something like that, and that was it. You had to come back 24 hours later and do it again. And that's really where the business model got started, because somebody eventually along the way realized, I can hook somebody with this. Um, I've heard discussions that there are a couple of uh, psychologists who have helped to kind of work for these companies and spread out this culture uh, because they know how addiction works and so they know how to make a game more addictive so that you'll spend more money. You know, we recently saw this with the South Park episode, I think, from last year. It was uh, uh, Freemium Isn't Free, uh, which talked about this entire idea about uh, these freemium games. I mentioned Dungeon Keeper Mobile, which is a very beloved game, and the mobile version was just a horrific slap in the face, from what I understand. Uh, watching Jim Sterling's review and, and Total Biscuit's review of, of, of it, it was just... It, it was like watching two grown men have something from their childhood destroyed. It was very sad. <laughs> oh my. Yeah. And so, and so they they have you know people who understand addiction, which gets into uh, some eth possible ethical breaches, which right. probably wouldn't be the first time this has happened. What ethics in gaming? Oh, I wouldn't even have thought it. <laughs> um. So, so consumer backlash against the so-called video game press aside, <laughs> which which did not which did not start with Zoe Quinn. That was just another tick in a long series of people I, getting irritated. I agree. Um, and just to clarify, there there's not enough evidence to indicate that she slept with people for favorable reviews. Well, the fact the fact that um, they were mentioned by an author that was sleeping with her 
looks bad enough in and of itself. Well, as far as I'm concerned, Zoquin has nothing to do with it anymore at all, and I don't care about her. My issue is in the other things that arose out of that whole debacle um, that were far more damning. You know what I mean? She was kind of a minor player. She didn't deserve to be harassed or anything, but no, and that that was the whole that yeah. was the whole point. Um, it was a it was other you know industry and insiders, so to speak, who decided to circle the bandwagon, and that wasn't helpful. And somebody from some other publication coming out and saying, you know, in that same mail email list that um, this no, this is not right. We shouldn't be involving ourselves like this. Do you remember the Dorito Pope? Um, Today from IGN. Um, bell for me. It sounds hilarious. <laughs> well, let me let me pull it up here. It was from a couple of years ago. I'm trying to remember who it was. It was um, journalist Jeff Knightley, who worked for IGN, I guess, took a massive amount of money from Pepsi and and Doritos, specifically for Doritos and Mountain Dew, to do game reviews. And it was perceived as, as, um, you know, a a breach of ethics, like somebody was was paying. So anyway, this meme got started where he was the Dorito Pope. He had a Dorito chip. Um, uh, <laughs> photoshopped onto his head like a pope's hat, and I think I've seen a few of those. Yeah, if I looked at it, right. probably ring a bell. <laughs> um, it was also referred to as Dorito Gate, <laughs> post Climate Gate, uh, from way back when. But um, you know, yeah. But I mean, to the topic um, at hand that we're talking about. More than the DLC, or more than downloadable content and pre-orders, I'm bothered by microtransactions. Microtransactions really, really bother me. And we were talking before we started. Um, I'm currently working my way through Metal Gear Solid Five, and it does have a few microtransactions, which really doesn't affect gameplay if you don't care about the online mode, which I don't give a sh- crap about that. Um, you can say shit, there. it's okay. <laughs> well, I don't give a shit about the online play, really. <laughs> but, um, you know, this was, there was a controversy because when the review copies were handed out um, about uh, five and a half, six weeks ago, a week or two ahead of launch date, there was some question as to whether or not the online component would require microtransactions to even get. And there was some evidence to say that Konami had been planning to charge you $60 for the game and then upwards of another $10 to $15 for the online component. And when the journalists, some of the journalists brought this to light, they backed off of it entirely. And now starting the game, you get 30 free main, what are called main base coins to get started with the online component. Um, but, you know, it, we're, we're talking about Konami, so, I, you know, if they're sacrificing babies to Satan, I wouldn't even be surprised. Um, but microtransactions, you know, are big in Call of Duty games. They're big in Battlefield, any of the online first-person shooters, the online battle arena games. They've even become something of a, of a, a stable in stuff like Counter-Strike and Team Fortress 2 which used to be entirely free, but now has a, a pay-to-win... Well, I wouldn't call it pay-to-win, but a pay-to-get 
to get better component to it. I remember when I first started on Steam, I didn't. I, I was working at Walmart and I was a cashier, so I didn't have money. Um, the only reason I even had a gaming PC was because I got money back from the school from like your student loans and stuff. Right. So I was like, what should I do with this money? Oh, I'll blow it on a computer. <laughs> so I built a computer and then I started playing a game called um, Blacklight Retribution, and the gameplay of it is just excellent. It's just it's got this. Mech Warrior aspect. It's like it had all these awesome things in it before Titanfall ever became a thing. And I played for the beta for Titanfall, and it was absolutely disgusting. Um, anyway, but it also has all those those microtransactions and like buy this armor pack and buy this weapon pack, and buy more points to get this specific weapon. Like you start out with crap, you really do. Because you're right. Hardly anything. You can pick up other people's weapons as you kill people, but it's an absolute pain in the ass to try and start off with just like a couple of rifles and a pistol. Right. But if you get so many points, you get the, the mech thing, so you can start killing people like crazy. And that gets really fun, and it's it's really good to get into it. But God, those microtransactions just piss me off. <laughs> it's just like you can't really even get very far in the game without at least doing that once. Regardless of the skill, the skill that you have. Are either of you guys familiar with two uh, YouTube reviewers, Total Biscuit and Jim Sterling? I've heard of Total Biscuit. Okay, um, I like both of them because they have enough differing opinion for me that I don't agree with them half the time, and so that makes me feel like I could trust them a little bit more when they review things. And I can tell you that uh, when it comes to microtransactions, I Total Biscuit has this view that there are two kinds. You have microtransactions that are um, character enhancement or uh, that are basically um, optical only. So that is skins, uh, different heads for a character. If you're familiar with Borderlands, Borderlands 2, you get lots of different heads and things. These things don't affect the gameplay at all. There's no benefit to buying them other than you're personalizing what your character looks like. The other type is uh, what you've just been talking about, where you start out with the worst uh, items that you can have in a game, but you can pay you know, $1, $2, $5, whatever, to get this pack that has this upgraded... Uh, weapons and armor and items or whatever it is you're looking for so that you can be better. And that's what's traditionally been referred to as pay to win. Um, because some of those packs um, can go upwards of two, $300 and can have the best stuff in the game in them. And you can potentially then buy um, the very best items in the game just by spending your money on it and dominate everybody else in the combat and, and so on. What do you think about that idea? Do you think there really is a distinction between cosmetic DLC and uh, gameplay affecting DLC? There totally is. Are you familiar with League of Legends? Yes, I've I've never played it, but I've heard of, I've heard of it and I've seen it. I wasted two years of my life on that game, <laughs> so it, it was it's excellent, and, and they do follow the same microtransaction business style because it's a completely free to play game. And you don't have to, like, you're going to start out, you're not going to know anything about the game. It's it's really similar to Dota. I mean, right. it came after Dota, and Dota 2 obviously came after it. Right. Um, 
the, the gameplay is simple to understand, and the mechanics, it's always an evolving, changing game. So you have to keep up with it, otherwise you're gonna not going to be like, I could jump in right now. I'd have to learn that all over again. It's been like two weeks practicing and doing all this stuff, even though I've got all this stuff that I can use, because a lot of that stuff that you get, all those items and certain things, like there's like runes, and then you can unlock champions, which are basically different people you can use to fight fight with and stuff like that. You can unlock that all by playing the game. You don't have to spend money. Now, you can spend money to unlock some of those champions and stuff like that, but you the, the way it's set up, you can't spend money to actually make your champion stronger or get more items or something like that. You can to get more pages to like hold your items or construct like different builds for your champions, but that actually doesn't necessarily make you better. So I, fi- I find the way that they've executed it very excellent. So that way you have the option. And yeah, I blew probably 150, 200 bucks on that game too. But I mean, it, it wasn't because I wanted to play better. And I, I got more access to different things. I could play with different people. Right. But it didn't necessarily change the gameplay. Right. Um, way WWE Immortals does microtransactions. Um, you have Immortal Credits, which can be used in their little store to buy additional characters and what have you, and you can earn those in various matches and what have you. You also have special challenge modes. And this part of it I think they get right. You can you can buy more with a bunch of Immortal Credits, which you can buy more of those by spending money or winning battles, or you can earn more challenge credits by entering regular battles, um, matches, and what have you. And there's kind of a split between spending actual money yeah. and then spending their their version of their currency. The one thing I'm waiting to happen is I'm waiting for people to be able to gift people various pieces of DLC, like in-game currency. World of Warcraft used to you were able to do that. Of course, they cracked down on people trying to sell <laughs> game currency. Um, they'll catch some people every now and then. You know, Tommy, if you go way back when, I mean, people used to sell their Diablo 2 characters. They'd power level it to 99, get the best items, and sell them on eBay for upwards of 100, 200 bucks. I mean, it's not necessarily a new concept. Right. But- but I totally see where you're going um, about this whole idea about gifting. You know, it kind of seems like it might be the next thing to pop up in some of these games. And and to me, um, you have you already have. I'm seeing some reflect. You know, some kind of repeats of a pattern. You know, before my time, even. Um, you know. NES came out in the late 80s, and that's when video games started making a comeback to a point because there was too much stuff flooded in the markets. There was... The market kind of, was small, too, back then. You have to remember, it was, what, probably... I'm just guessing a hundredth the size the video gaming industry is today. Probably, yeah. probably more like a thousandth or a millionth or something like that, but it was a very small deal in the 80s. By comparison, and you know, you you'd have people from various publications who knew personally video game developers. Um, 
the company online, which later became Sierra Online, yeah. and some other trade publication I can't remember their name of comes to mind. And but even then, there was still some, you know, there was still legitimate criticism of horrible ports and things like that. Even though they didn't really want to, you know, talk bad about, you know, a product put out by people they personally knew, but they still believed in quality. Um, so there's that conflict there. Eventually, things just kind of crashed because there was too much more supply than demand. Um, do you do you think that a crash is imminent? Um, is it a good or bad thing? If it there is, I don't think that there is one imminent. I mean. I certainly can't see the market crashing next year or even two or three years down the road, but I think it's possible that it could, and in some ways I think it would be a good thing if it did. Um, there are, you know, anybody who plays in video games knows the evil side of it when it comes down to dealing with companies like Activision, EA, now we can add Konami to that list of, of shit-based companies. Yeah, Ubisoft, you know, which is very sad because I happen to love Far Cry, but my God, they're a terrible company um, when it comes, you know. And other game studios really have a hard time. You know, I asked myself the other day, it's like, how is it Rockstar has managed to survive as long as it has and uh, avoided this crap that has permeated the AAA games market? Because... I mean, GTA 5, GTA 4, GTA, they've all been good. They've all done their own thing and stayed on their own track. And, um, you know, it's, I, I don't know. It's just a, a really interesting question. I don't know what the results would be. I don't know if a crash, um, you know, would completely collapse the market or not. But I think it would be a good thing if some companies, especially publishers, were either forced to change their business practices to survive or just, you know, to die as a company. I can completely agree with that. I mean, I, I honestly don't think that the game market will crash anytime soon, if, if at all, really. I, I see it hard for that to happen, but I don't, I don't think that the possibility isn't there. Um, and if it were to crash, yeah, it would, it would decimate some of those companies that have kind of locked themselves into an idea that oh, we gotta we gotta generate as much money off of X game title here. Right. Like, fucking Assassin's Creed. Like they've sprung that out right. from two thousand eight to two thousand fifteen. They're coming on Syndicate, which is their eighth main game in the series. Now if you go to like the Assassin's Creed Wiki, there's like a twenty one freaking icon list of all the actual games that they've published under that title. And right. to me, that's fucking beating a horse with a dead stick. Or a dead horse with a stick. You know that. Correct. We, we saw this coming in 2011 when Ubisoft said that they were going to put a ban on new intellectual properties within the company and that they were going to focus on, on monetizing the intellectual properties they already had. At the time, that was Crisis, Far Cry, and Assassin's Creed. And, you know, this is, uh, 2011 is the height 
of Call of Duty Madness. I think Modern Warfare 3 came out that year and ended that trilogy. And that was the time when people started to really get sick of Call of Duty games. Although at the same time, for everyone that didn't like it, there were two who did, and, and it was enough of a market to keep going. And that's what I was going to say. I agree with, with Shaggy that a, a collapse of the market is not imminent, but I could see a collapse of franchises being imminent. For example, if this year's Call of Duty Black Ops does as bad as uh, Advanced Warfare and Ghost did, <laughs> you know, it's it's a really hard thing to say what's going to happen um, to certain intellectual properties like that. Uh, for as much as I liked Far Cry 4, uh, it was basically just a reskin of Far Cry 3 with some new weapons added and new voice acting. And that is a, in my mind, that is a mobile gaming um, philosophy. To reskin your title, re-release it, make more money off of it, keep making money, keep making money, and so on. So Angry I, Birds. Well, you know, Angry Birds is an example, um, but I'd actually... The problem is is that I don't play mobile games. I don't have any on my phone. I've never had one on my phone of any kind at all. And so what I know comes from what I read uh, online, whether it be through the journalism websites or what I see through the YouTubers I follow, that sort of thing. Um, most people I know are strictly PC, console, um, maybe some handheld. I mean, the closest I get to mobile gaming is my, my PS Vita here, which to me is a mobile gaming device, and I take it out and play with it once a month probably uh, when there's that one specific game that I just have to try, usually a JRPG or something like that. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a tough market to sell to me personally because my money is limited. So when I buy a video game, I want something that's going to be worth my money, that's going to entertain me, going to tell me a story. You know, I hate to fall into that trap, but I prefer more mature games, at least in the sense that they, they mature in the way that they have been constructed well. Not necessarily that the story is gritty and violent, but just that the game is a game that was not thrown together in a month you know, by some studio we've never heard of. Basically, where there's like some sort of solid story, not just destiny. <laughs> where, oh. they, where they kind of like, it, it was like they had the intention of having a pretty epic story in there, and then they're just like, I don't know. They're just going to play the game and shoot each other. They, they don't give a damn about what the lore is. And like, right, well, oh. we have issue. <laughs> Uh, recently, one of the, I think it was the head of EA, had said that nobody gives a crap about single-player games anymore. It's all about multiplayer. And this was in relation to Star Wars Battlefront, which looked like it was going to be an amazing game, and that looks like a piece of trash that I won't give them. And the funny thing was is that if that was the case, then why did Skyrim sell 11 million units the first week? Why did Fallout 4 when it was announced, get something like 4 million pre-orders in 24 hours. You know, I, I think when you get down to... I'm, I'm going to fall trapped to that pre-ordered game, too, just because I, of the game, but. <laughs> I, I tell you, I haven't pre-ordered it, 
but I it's one game I would consider pre-ordering if there's some kind of incentive to do it. Now I know that seems kind of contrary to what I said earlier, but you know it's I don't know that's a hard maybe I need to reevaluate my stance a little bit. But <laughs> I would I mean here's the thing though I mean I'm a massive fan of the Metal Gear series. I've played every single game since the very first one back on Super Nintendo, and um, I didn't pre-order five. I got it you know, when I got the chance to get it. And um, it's, you know, pre-order culture can be a bad thing, but I guess in some ways it can be a good thing. Although, if you remember, those of us who are older remember what pre-ordering games used to be. You'd go to GameStop or Walmart or Hastings and you'd give them a $5 bill and they'd give you a receipt, and you'd come back two months later when the game launched and pay the remaining balance of the game. And take the game home. That's it's where not, I bought my PSP. <laughs> exactly. It's not like it was today. It is today when you pay the full price of a game up front, sometimes months or even years in advance. Um, if I remember correctly, Skyrim was announced uh, one year before it came out, and, P and Amazon was doing pre-orders in January. You know, nine, ten months before the game even would come out, and so. There's this weird um, culture that surrounds pre-ordering that I just don't understand anymore because it's gotten so far out of hand. Um, pre-ordering back in the day, and and it still does happen every now and then, where where you can you know put five bucks down to kind of reserve a copy, and it's basically a glorified gift card. <laughs> That's all it is when you do get your actual copy of the game. Um, nowadays, and it was, there was some incentive to get it. You, you would basically guaranteed you would, you would for sure, as long as you had the rest of the money, get that game. And, um, you know, back in the old days, you had, um, there was a chance the game might sell out day one. You know, in a, in a post-digital society now, that is a completely irrelevant problem. And I mentioned that earlier for the Atlas right. game, which was a bigger concern for Atlas games. Even now, it's a totally irrelevant problem. Um, and that's why pre-order culture has adopted or adapted and pulled in, you know, all these goodies to get you to buy the game. Um, the worst thing in my mind is when there are multiple pre-orders from multiple different groups and Fallout New Vegas was a prime example of this because it had a different pre-order bonus for like seven retailers from GameStop to Amazon. Right. It was you like seriously, you had to have a spreadsheet to figure out which volume, where to pre-order to get the most stuff out of it. And of course, all that stuff showed up on the Game of Year edition, and then eventually on the online stores. You know, six months later for as DLC purchase for cheap. Um, but it was, it was it gets a little ridiculous in my opinion when you need a spreadsheet to figure it out fair enough um, now, nowadays it's there's there's no ex true exclusives there used to be box sets where they throw in extra little items little booklets giving additional information you can get that with some games nowadays I mean granted I agree with you. It's not near as popular as it used to be. Like, 
when I used to get like Game Boy Advance games and stuff like that, or like when I got my first PlayStation, it came with a demo disc. Like demo discs aren't a thing anymore. Your PlayStation, you get the PlayStation. You don't get anything else. <laughs> like or like you get the the Game Boy Advance games. You might get like a little thing inside or something like that. It wasn't as common with Game Boy Advance games, but. You get the game manual too. Like that, that was one of the most fun things as a kid was being able to read through the game, game manual before you start the game. Like, ooh, what's in the game? What, like, what kind of game plays in? And like, that was the excitement. Yeah. And then now it's just like they put you in the game and they like fucking just drag you around like a little baby half the time. Right. And that's, that's why I like a lot of Bethesda's games is because they just kind of throw you into the action. There might be a little bit of a tutorial, but for the most part, you have to figure it out yourself. Um, what I was going to say is that actually console or exclusives uh, and exclusive pre-orders deluxe editions are still a huge thing because you look at the uh, Call of Duty Black Ops 3 has a, had a pre-order. I think it's sold out now. A mini fridge. You get a mini fridge with a freaking pre-order that deluxe holds like a six-pack of soda. And they're not. this is not the first time that was done. I believe that Battlefield... Field 4 did the same thing, and there was another one. that uh, One of the Star Wars games had a mini-fridge. Uh, even Metal Gear Solid 5 had a full-scale replica of Solid Snake's robotic arm. Uh, and these things can go for three, $400. Um, and, they're, they're, I mean, they sell out day one, usually. If you can't find them after 24 hours, good luck getting one unless you go to eBay and you're going to pay the $800, $900 price tag somebody wants to sell it for. Um, and the same thing is true, you know, you were talking about demo discs, which reminds me of what that's become a, is bundles. Um, now, instead of getting a demo disc with ten different games that may or may not be coming out in the next year, you go and pick up, like, I just bought my PS4. Here, let me find the box. Did it have, like, a choice of four games with it? No, uh, the only one they had was this uh, Arkham Knight edition. Have so you played I got, it yet? I haven't played it yet. You're gonna love it. But um, so what it did is it gives me an entire free game basically for the for buying the console. And there are several of these. You know, you look uh, Black Ops Three again. It has actually not only does it have a bundle, but it has a unique PlayStation that's got a, a black and orange theme. Um, you know, Metal Gear Solid Five did this. They had a red. Uh, PS4, Destiny had a, a beautiful uh, pearl white with some weird patterns on it um, type thing. So, I mean, there's a lot of, of quote-unquote, I guess you call it choice in consoles that you don't see, I think, on PC as much anymore. Um, but, yeah, I, I do miss the days of the demo disc and flipping through game manuals. Um <laughs> I was more referring to where it would have like maybe a, you know the strategy guide bundles or maybe even a little nice big booklet giving extra information right. on characters, additional comic backstory. You used to do comic books a lot of times. You get uh, I think Legacy of Kane had a special edition that came with a 64-page comic book. I think it was done by Todd McFarlane. Somebody would have to fact check me on that. I may be wrong. But, um, you know, and it was, that was the only way to get that issue of the comic was because it had an alternate cover, was to buy the game, the deluxe edition. Mass Effect 2 came with, like, a uh, 
a comic book. There was a separate comic that kind of filled in the story between the first and the second game. And also it included like uh, so many pages, like 100 page um, art book. And that's the coolest thing about a lot of PC games now. Is it, there's not many of them out there, but there are some that get you get this collector's edition. Like they did something for Dark Souls recently too. If I think the second one, where you get like you get this armor bonus pack, but you also get a bunch of these other little goodies that just like you don't get, you won't get anywhere else. And that's why I was really pissed off about the fact that <laughs> the Fallout 4 uh, Bit Boy edition sold out so freaking quick. It sold out within an hour that they believe. I completely forgot about that. It comes with a full-scale replica of a freaking pit boy. I know, and I was like, I wanted that so bad, and I was like, waiting. I was, I thought I would get an update on my phone when it was going to happen because I've been checking, and I'm like crazy about Fallout Four. Like, yeah. I'm itching because there's a month and a half left. But like, I wanted that part so bad. Like, I was totally ready and willing to throw down 120 bucks just right. for the collector's edition because I think it also came with like a book or something else. Yeah. But I mean, I can still get the app and control the Pit Boy on my phone, which is going to be freaking awesome. But because that comes free, you don't have to pay for that part. But I wanted the damn Pit Boy so bad. Right. Oh. You know, actually, the thing that kind of surprised me is to see. I was looking at this. It's uh, Black Ops Three is the second Call of Duty game to do the mini fridge thing. And so I was kind of disappointed because it, since it's in the future, I was expecting it to come with a full-fledged drone aircraft. Uh, you, you wait and see. There will be one of these military shooters that will have a deluxe edition with a drone that comes with it. Um, I, I'm actually surprised it hasn't happened yet. I'm sure it will within the next few years. <laughs> Maybe we'll get it in the Ghost Recon Wildlands or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, a lot of this culture was here before mobile gaming, but I think that mobile gaming has given it a resurgence, especially when it comes to consoles. Consoles seem to be harder hit at the moment than the PC market, and I think it's because right now Steam has an absolute monopoly. I mean, I don't I don't know anyone that uses Origin unless they have to. Like, I bought Far Cry 3... Yeah, I, I bought it through Steam, and I have to. I launched the game through Steam, but I still have to go into Origin to do it, which is funny. Um, but uh, yeah. same thing with you play for any Assassin's Creed game. That exactly. makes it my mind out. <laughs> uh, doing the whole you play thing, um, but nobody has come close to, to getting what Steam has done, and Steam has kept a pretty tight control on this. You know, one of the examples though that came to my mind. The most infamous recent example was uh, Aliens Colonial Marines, um, which was loaded down with pre-order DLC, aftermarket DLC, and then, of course, the game was a massive lie of itself. Uh, Not one thing that happened in the 15-minute-long demo happened in the game. I don't even think those locations were in the game. Um... You know that you could. We could do a whole episode on Gearbox, Sega, and Colonial Marines and the, the great lie <laughs> of 2012, 2013. Oh wow! Um, and do, so, do you do you think Steam could be a savior of the desktop uh, gaming market, or is it just 
Well, I, I think Steam has a bigger problem right now, and that is Greenlight, which uh, is just full of abuse and uh, shitty unfinished games being sold for 9 10 20 bucks. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any... Like, why would a, a game developer have the, the ability to censor criticism of his game on his own forums? Uh, we've had um, false DMCAs issued to YouTubers who have streamed games. We had the uh, Day Z one and, and the Day One Gary's incident, which is a very, very infamous pile of trash that wound up on Steam somehow um, as, as a full game. Um, and Guys of the Wolf, which is quite possibly the... Uh, Total Biscuit does a research Let's Play for Guys of the Wolf, and if you've never seen it, it's worth your time to watch because it is hilarious. Um, he's just completely flabbergasted by the stupidity of some of the design in the game and how unfinished and poorly put together and broken it is. Um, so in, in my opinion, I don't know that Steam has the ability right now to focus on that problem because I think it needs to get its green light problem in check first. But, you know, at the same time, I mean, Steam is the force in PC gaming, so I don't think that it's out of the realm of possibility they could make a difference. I don't see what they could do for the console market. Um, I'm not aware... Uh, I haven't gotten a chance to even look at a Steam box yet. I'm not even sure if they're available yet. They're supposed to be available this year, with the exception of a very minor few. The uh, okay. Alienware Alpha came out um, fall of last year. And it's technically not a Steam box at the same time that it is. Because it's running Windows Yeah. Uh, underneath a custom UI that um, Dell has made for their Alienware Alpha console. Right. Uh, basically, you can like turn it off and access some settings, go straight to Steam, which boots, or what doesn't boot, but opens up Steam in the big picture mode, or you can go to Windows. Okay. So it's, it's, it is a Steam box, but it's not, because if it was a real Steam box, it probably would have been running Steam OS right. instead of Windows. Right. Um, See, I had something else. Right. <laughs> and and really, it's a glorified um, media-based PC that you hook up to a TV, albeit one that's upgradable, actually. Which, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's it, I, I I still see it where I work at, and it you know it rarely sells. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it's one of those hidden treasures to where if you're wanting something halfway decent for a decent price as a workstation, sure, go for it. But <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it as a workstation, honestly. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't either. Uh, the one that's sold in Walmart, um, I when I had got hurt, I remember mentioning this on a previous podcast, I had to sit in electronics and just kind of wash around because they didn't trust me to do anything else. They thought I'd hurt myself again. And I had one customer come up and ask me about it. Um, and I had, I had spent probably about a month in there on, on evenings for various amounts of time, between two to six hours, depending on what the task for the day was. And he came up to me, and I remember him being in some of my classes there at Warrensburg, but he came up to me and he's like, so what's the deal with this thing? <laughs> like, and... Since I'm me being a computer nerd, like 
I've built an on computer. I know a lot about computer hardware. I'm not a guru or an expert by any means, but I understand a lot of this stuff, and I knew the specs of the console. And basically, it was just kind of a semi-decent Core i5 with it. Uh, yeah, all it said on the box was a 2-gigabyte NVIDIA GTX graphics card, which I'm pretty sure which would, would have been like a 650 or 750 at the time, not even the TI version. So it's you could build a computer for about the same price and maybe get better performance. I don't know. That's, that's debatable. But it, it, it's still there. It's just... And it's probably still going to be there six months from now. And well, it's a little bit like the thing that really bothered me is is that I do not subscribe to this idiotic debate. You've heard the terms PC master race and console peasants. I think that whole thing is bullshit. Um, I don't subscribe to any of that. Um, but it is weird. It, it kind of reminds me, Steam wanting to make a console kind of reminds me of Apple saying recently that by 2019 they're going to have an a, a electric car. And I'm thinking, why would a company like this, you know, equating these two, want to get into areas that they don't have any experience in? Wouldn't it be better if Apple were to just form a partnership with Ford or somebody and put their technology in a Ford electric car? Uh, the same thing could be said about Steam. Wouldn't it be better for Steam to find a way to integrate its technology with the currently existing consoles rather than trying to be Sega and put a, another console out there, you know, into the into the fray, uh, only to probably have it fail? I, I really don't see... If, if you're a Steam gamer, why are you going to spend money on a Steam box? You'll just build a computer, a PC. Well, and see, I have a problem with that, too, because... At the same time that I see, from my point, viewpoint anyway, what Steam is doing with this whole Steambox concept is they're kind of doing a both the thing of pushing their own hardware because they've made their own controller and stuff like that. But at the same time, they're branching out to a ton of hardware PC manufacturers and saying, hey, we want you to build this, this kind of a PC for us. I mean, you can go to Steam right now and go to the hardware tab or whatever it is in the store. And there's tw- a, a dozen, at least. And there's some of them in there. Like, Gigabyte has this little box. It's actually kind of cute. It's uh, one of their Gigabyte Bricks PCs that's, like, the size of a soda can. Pretty yeah. Kind of like a Raspberry Pi. Yeah. And at the same time, yeah, they should. They really should be focusing on uh, something else where they should have that... Uh, only focus on like having other manufacturers make it rather than trying to make their own controller and all this other stuff. There's already stuff out there. Just focus on SteamOS. Just focus yeah. on Steam and SteamOS. That's what's making you the yeah. most money. You're going to waste a lot of time and effort doing something like that. Yeah. For example, how about Half-Life 3? <laughs> I, I don't think they even really have a game development department anymore. Like, minus Dota 2. Like, what else have they done in the last five years? Yeah. I remember. I think it was Volition who recent, recently said if if uh, if Valve would grant the rights to them, they would go ahead and make Half Life Three. Uh, you know, just give us. They wanted to do it. You know, it's it's funny to see a studio wants to do it. Um, out of the kidding side, I don't know many people who honestly are expecting it to come out. And given what happened with Duke Nukem Forever. 
Uh, I'm not sure I want to see uh, Half-Life 3 at this point. I think it may have passed its prime, and we just need to move on. <laughs> but, uh, it would either be a major horrible flop and just be an absolute turd, or it would be one of those situations kind of like with Portal 2 where like there was such a, gener- uh, a time gap between Portal, made in 2007, or came out in 2007, and Portal 2 that released in late 2011, early 2012, where they actually practically got a new generation of gamers involved in the game. And that was actually epic and great for Valve. They sold so many copies. It was one of the best games they did, better than the original, in my opinion. That's right. Uh, Another thing I wanted to mention uh, on a comment that you made earlier, and uh, I just forgot it again. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) Don't worry, I do the time. No, no, I'll confess. I the only gaming console I technically have is an old Sega Genesis right now. Um, I, I'm mainly mainly desktop computers. I for, and one day I will own a desktop computer that has eight gigabytes of memory in it again, at the very least. I have two that has four, and that's all they'll basically right. carry. But um, from what I have seen, um, in terms of you know gaming on any platform, one of, one of the big concerns was you know oversaturation to the point where people are just sick of it and have better things to do. Flappy Bird and its seven billion clones, which you know the the guy that made it basically felt so horrible that they they pulled it from the market and then they said they would make another but please take a break every now and then and yeah. um, and those sorts of things and then you have you have things that appear to be games but they question whether they're actually games or more interactive fiction Right. Two, two um, Maddox kind of, kind of, in one of his satirical articles, bitches about that. Like you, you want you want something with a full storyline, things like that for single player. Not, not always. Uh, I just want when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, I want something that's worth the money I'm going to put into it because my money is so limited as a poor broke college student that I want to. I would rather pay sixty dollars for a game I can play for two, three months than I would pay $60 for a game that I'm going to play for eight hours. Right. A good friend of mine equated it to a really great metric. That like, okay, so, and this works great for games like Skyrim or, in my case, Kingdoms of Amor that I've been playing recently, where the dollar amount that you spend on the game uh, equate that and get a ratio on the amount of hours that you actually put on the game. So, like, you pay 60 bucks for a game. So you pay $60 for Skyrim. How much time can you put into that game? I have a couple of friends on my friends list on Steam that have put in 500 hours. So basically, that's about like 10 cents per hour, something like that, I think. It's ridiculous. So, I mean, that's the kind of metric that I usually use. So, like, and I always wait for games to come on sale. And then I found a couple other sites where I buy games now where it's, like, ridiculously cheap. Good. I bought uh, Batman Arkham Knight for like 15 bucks like a week after it came out. 
Oh wow, nice. That was awesome. Um, but that's that's the way I usually compare it. So that if, like if I spend X amount of money and then I end up not liking this game, providing that it was fairly cheap, I didn't put too much time into it, but at the same time I didn't put too much money into it. So I didn't necessarily lose out as compared to spending sixty plus dollars on a game to only have six to eight hours of gameplay. Exactly. You know, I recently had this conversation with a friend of mine down here, and we were talking about Call of Duty, and I said, you know, if they were to separate the multiplayer from the campaign stories that they like to tell, and they were to charge twenty nine ninety nine for a campaign that maybe was uh, twice as long as a normal one is, I'd buy it. I never played the multiplayer on those games, and I, I don't hide. I've, I've played them all. I probably will play Black Ops. I'm certainly not going to buy it day one. I'm certainly not going to drop sixty dollars. <laughs> But um, you know, I'll play it. I'll give it a. I'll give it a whirl because uh, they are fun. They can be. Go ahead, be fun. But um, you know, it's when it comes down to where my money goes. You think about mobile gaming and how easy it is for your money to slip away. If uh, are you guys familiar with Boogie Two Nine Eight Eight on YouTube? He he has a character called Francis. He's a he's a very large man. And he has this character who rages at things all the time. It's uh, kind of a comedy thing. Um, he had one episode where his mom his mom is played by his wife. She's a character. And she comes in and she says, how did you spend $300 on the credit card? And he's, he's talking about playing Candy Crush and about running out of moves. And that he, you know, it, it's so addicting. You know, he's just spending $300 on the credit card on Candy Crush. And that's why that's one reason I stay away from mobile games in particular is that it's easy to do that. My sister was playing something and she ran up sixty bucks on the phone bill, um, buying stuff off of one of the mobile games, pretty easily without even realizing she'd done it. Oh my God, it's, it's a nutty, nutty thing. Um, you know? my my ex, um, she, um. She spent money in Bubble Witch Saga 2 just to get the boosting because it's easier to have those for free in the beginning than it is at later levels where it becomes more and more difficult. A lot, a lot of people have, you know, a lot of people have done this, and and I'm one of them too. That's not, thankfully, not that particular game, but. A different game, and I I think there will be kind of a at some point a recession of sorts for you know microtransactions because eventually people are going to see through that and kind of get tired of it. You would think that they would, but for the last four years they haven't, and the profits are. This is one of the reasons why Hideo Kojima parted ways with Konami, and Konami basically fired the rest of its AAA development staff was because they think the future is in mobile games and microtransactions, and that's where the money's at. And um, I think that they're not the first company to take that view, and they're certainly not going to be the last to take that view. Um, so I don't know necessarily that it will break out, because they're, uh, some of the recent examples of games that have microtransactions, they made four or five times the money off the microtransactions than they did off the games themselves. So there's definitely a market for it, 
uh, Steam even has microtransactions for right. it with the, the uh, Steam trading cards and uh, items from everything that you know Steam gets a cut of. And so it's... I, I don't know that it is going to crash. I really don't. At it, least not in the next few years. If there's a crash that's on the level, economic crash on the level of 2008, it probably... Probably that's when it would take place because people would at those times take harder look at their finances and realize I really shouldn't be spending my money on this and up in my phone bill. Right. So if any, if it's, if it is to happen, it will happen around those time periods where it's just, everybody tightens their belt, so to speak. Right. Cause even now with, with one of my favorite games on my phone, I'm starting to get tired of playing it. And I've got better things to do with my time. Um, now, with with that said, you mentioned you know mobile gaming being problematic in terms of that. Um, do you think there's not enough quality things that don't involve uh, microtransactions, like? The Final Fantasy III didn't involve a microtransaction, but you had to buy the full game, for example. Um, well, I don't really think there's quality in the mobile gaming industry. Go ahead, Jackie. Oh, no, you're good, man. <laughs> no, I, I, that's, that's my comment. That's what I want to say. Oh. I think there's quality there. Well, I just had a little comment, too. I was just like, for me, I would rather spend, like, X amount of money getting a full game rather than getting some negligible amount of gameplay and then pay so much to like boost something or get more weapons or get more items or whatever. I'd rather just pay for a full game. Like I did that with, um, let's see, what was, uh, it's like a level power defense game. It still has some of the microtransactions and stuff in it, but like I paid five bucks for the game four years ago, and I'm still kind of playing it every now and then. I mean, it depends on what it is. I mean, I'm burnt out on it right now, but that's because I played the crap out of it, like, sitting in the car waiting on something or whatever, or just sitting somewhere, like, on break at work or whatever. I mean, just you can pour tons amount of tons and tons of time into a game, and the fun thing about it was it had tons of strategy. You didn't, you could pay, like, to do some extra things, but it really wasn't all that beneficial. Like, right. you can earn all of that in the game. And it's much more fun to earn it rather than pay this and then, oh, yeah, I get all this and uh, beat all the levels. What am I going to do now? <laughs> so. What, what about maker tools, those who are interested in making some of their own games, particularly RPGs? RPG Maker comes to mind because it's also available on Steam. And some of their newer editions allow you to export your project to Android as well and to where more people can actually play your games. Because we we talk about gameplay, but we also, you know, I don't see a lot of conversations on making your own games except except for Flappy Bird where the guy pulled it from from market. On PC, you're talking about Steam Greenlight. 
And um, I think that you're seeing both the benefits and the problems of having such a platform. Um, we've had several examples of games that were breakout hits because of Greenlight. Most recently, uh, Hatred, a game that I have zero interest in playing. However, I can appreciate that it exists. I understand why it exists, because it exists the same reason Postal existed way back when. <laughs> um, but then at the same time, like I mentioned, you have other problems that show up. Day One, Yuri's Incident, uh, Guys of the Wolf, you know, these just poorly put together games that are being sold for 20, 30 bucks. The developers are censoring all the criti criticism of the games that they can, going so far as to take down videos uh, falsely accusing them of copyright infringement. The passage class! <laughs> yeah, sorry. That, that unfortunately did happen. <laughs> um, Phil, um, West, Phil Wesley of DMG Ice did a review on it and said that it was a good first effort. He didn't like the idea of lack of visuals, and he noted a number of typos. <laughs> yeah. But um, it, it, it's, you, you were talking, I had to bring it up because you talked about DMCA, false DMCA requests, yeah. things like that. Well, if, if you've never heard of it, there's a particularly terrible game called Ride to Hell Retribution. Um, on theme. Uh, again, uh, Total Biscuit has a beautiful let's play of it that is just hilarious and showcases the absolute very, very, it, you know, this game never should have been made available to sell uh, based on what it was. Um, I, I will point that the fully clothed, dry-humping sex scenes are hilarious and very mis misogynistic at the same time, but also hilarious. There's another YouTube channel that I follow that had that, and it's they always do top tens. It's called yeah. uh, WatchMojo.com. Yeah. And I love a lot of their stuff that they do because they do top tens about pick a topic, you name it, they've probably got a top ten of it. Like, right. Not just video games, it's like... Actors, movies, I mean... Right, comics. And it's there. I mean, and it's really cool because... And they did one on the basic idea of, like, top ten crappy X video games or something like that. And that was one of them. Yeah. And, like, it showed it showed an image of... The, the physics engine in it was so shitty, too, on top yeah. of, like, the, all the dry humping and all that stupid right. crap that they had. Uh, like, there was no story. There was hardly any story to it. I mean, it just didn't right. flow well. It was so choppy. And then the, the physics aspect, like, the, the motorcycle was facing this way, but it was okay. accelerating that way and yeah. sliding. And, like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just as dumb as, like, going in and playing, like, Goat Simulator, which, now, right. granted, that game is kind of technically designed that way, even though, from what I've heard, it was actually just, like, broken, and they decided to push it out anyway as... Kind of just part of the gameplay, but no. That's the funny thing about Ride to Hell Retribution is that there are times when some of the motorcycle enemies will randomly stop and fly up out of the view of the screen into the sky. You know, and you're thinking this is a thirty dollar game on Steam. Why is this doing this? So, so let me get this straight. There is an actual game 
with sex scenes that do not involve clothes coming off at all. Yeah, no, the Tommy. Honestly, we should probably link it somewhere as a joke so that readers or listeners can see it. Um, there's plenty of YouTube videos. You just search "Ride to Hell Retribution Sex Scenes." It has the worst, cheesiest music. They're all everybody's fully clothed. They go way too far, which is what makes it hilarious. Um, it's just. I remember what the top ten video was. It was not the top ten crappy video games. It was the top ten uh, video games that portray sex poorly. Yeah. Another one of them that was on there with uh, GTA San Andreas. Right. Where it had those like hidden sex scenes in there, where it's like practically like the the man doesn't have a penis. Okay, and they're right. fully clothed, just like in that. The, right. Like, whatever that game was called. And it's just so crappy. But you can see the head, like <laughs> the woman's head coming up. Gap right here, like obvious gap. And then go back down, like, what? <laughs> so, so basically... Yeah, I see that in that other game, too. So basically it's rated R done wrong. Yeah. Rated R done completely. You remember, did, you ever, did your parents ever have Cinemax when you were a kid? <laughs> yeah. Remember what comes on after 10 p.m., the softcore porn that features a lot of big <laughs> girls? That's what it was. That's what it was. It was, you know, Agent Mulder going, doing sex to women, only there's no sex involved. Everyone's <laughs> <laughs> wearing pasties. Um, yeah, they're, they're hilarious. Um, oh, my God. Wow. I... When I first saw it, I almost fell out of the chair. I was laughing so hard. I, I couldn't. I almost wanted to spend money on the game, hopefully during a Steam sale, just so I can experience it firsthand <laughs> myself. Um, <laughs> you know, because the game, the game as a, as a whole is just an absolute piece of trash. Uh, one, it's a game that takes place. It's about bikers in the 1960s, and at one point he walks out of the house, and you hear the old man talking to him and he's talking, but it's like, wait, there are no cell phones. There's no earpieces. How are they talking to each other? And there's obviously no radio in his hand or anything. It's like they just wanted to have a conversation over long distance. They just shoved it in the game somehow. You know, the voice of God or something is carrying the two voices over the airwaves or something. It's ridiculous. Is this a game that Anita Sarkeesian looked Keyesian looked at or no, out of curiosity. Um, I don't think that she has looked at It's a very small time. The company that made it is from the United Kingdom, and if you look them up, they're mostly known for making NASCAR games, shitty PC NASCAR racing games. Um, and so this was obviously a project that somebody said, I have $100,000 and I want to make a video game about bikers in the 1960s and motorcycle gangs. Make it happen. And they you know, came back five months later and said, here's Ride to Hell Retribution. <laughs> Go for it. Because because if even she doesn't even want to talk about it, you know it's probably pretty horrible. I, I don't know. I, I don't know much about her. I have <laughs> about her that are different for a different story, a different time, another day. Um because I'm wait, I'm waiting for those games where you know the false critic looks at it and goes yeah no thanks <laughs> no thank you I don't want to 
Well, you know, so we were talking about uh, the mobile. The overall theme has been mobile gaming and how how it affects other games. One of the most recent examples that I personally found to be disgusted about was microtransactions in Mortal Kombat 10. Does anybody here know what they did with microtransactions? No. You gotta tell me. That kind of already upsets me. Just the idea of it just so, literally changed my mood. <laughs> what, what they what they did is they put in microtransactions. You can buy death coins. Um, death coins are coins that you can use to execute fatalities without having to do the button combo. Oh, that's utter bullshit. <laughs> no, the fun of the game is like learning how to execute the fatality. Why? Why would you rip that out of? Oh my god! What was even worse is that the choices you could get sixty coins for like five ninety nine, or you could get like a thousand coins for fifty nine ninety nine, and I think that was your only two choices. And yes, you're taking a fundamental mechanic of Mortal Kombat. And you're saying, what it does is when you when you win the match, it offers you, it says use a coin or execute the buttons. And so you can just hit the coin and he'll just automatically walk up, hit the guy and do the fatality for you. So you can, uh, don't have to actually do the work for him. Oh my god, really? Yeah. That's, that just sounds utterly atrocious. It makes me not want to buy that game anymore. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people were pretty displeased. And you can get the death coins um, through the... They have many games within Mortal Kombat. You can get some of them there, but yeah, they were set up as, as a piece of microtransaction to build more money out of people for it. On an unrelated note, um, turns out in my favorite game on my phone... Johnny Cage does make an appearance. <laughs> so, don't ask me why. I, th- I think they they I think it's the same. It's because it's a lot of the same sure. people who do Mortal Kombat games also developed it. <laughs> yeah, that, that could definitely be the case. And I'm like, oh, why? Ah. <laughs> uh, no, recently, there's been this discussion. Um, I know Jim Sterling has talked about one of his contacts in the industry who won't give a name because he fears reprisal for speaking out. Um, but he's talked about one of his contacts within the industry has talked about how CEOs of major gaming corporations, gaming boils down to three games, uh, Clash of Clans, Candy Crush, and Call of Duty, which all have this special similarity between them, that they can be churned out year after year after year after year, new copies, new copies all the time, and they're a continuous money-making machine. And he talked in that episode, we ought to link to that episode, I'll get it for you, and and we can link to it in the the comments later, but um, he talks in the episode about how this has been influencing game design development. You might have noticed in the recent years there's been a downtake a downturn in the number of horror titles available. There's been a downturn in the number of, um, you know, traditional ARPG titles uh, in the works. You haven't seen quite as many uh, space simulators. Like, uh, I think recently we got a game called Elite Dangerous that came out, but that's the only one that I've thought of that of having been any anything like a Wing Commander game. We used to see a lot of those, build a starship and, and dogfight. 
And the industry has just dropped those entirely because they're afraid there won't be any money to be made. But like as in the case of Elite Dangerous, it made a lot of money, a ton of money. And the industry is just leaving ideas and um, uh, gaming uh, pieces of, of gaming history laying on the floor for indie devs and smaller studios to pick up and make a literal boatload of cash off of, which is kind of ironic to me. Well, and the, the thing I see about that is one problem that I can see that's caused this would be that in the case of like space simulators or uh, certain titles from action RPGs, and stuff like that. They're they're kind of a niche, niche in, inside the entire gaming uh, realm. And then that, that's why I have like such immense respect for like Bethesda Game Studios as a developer and a publisher because the, minus Elder Scrolls Online, there's not a bad game they've ever done. Which they didn't even do. That was that was Zenimax. Well, yeah, and even that game wasn't very bad. I had the opportunity to play the beta. The gameplay is excellent. The game, the, the, what they've done with the gameplay was just crazy. Like they've had, they introduced dual wielding and a bunch of other stuff, and then like different kind of a, a different take on a skill tree and stuff like right. that. But when it comes to like some of those other niche games, like uh, if you talk about space sims and stuff like that, there was a series of games called uh, like X and then. X2 and X3, yeah, yeah. and they all had different titles and stuff like that. And then they came out with one most recently, I think it was in 2013, and a buddy of mine got me into it, and that's super complex. <laughs> it's yeah, not yeah. like, okay, you go in here and build a ship and whatnot. No, you get a ship, and then you can go in and build stuff, but you also have this entire commerce system. You have uh, right. different worlds you can travel to, like an entire, almost like a galaxy, just the span of a game is like, it rivals EVE Online, but it's not an online game, it's completely single player. That's, we're going to see that here in the next year with No Man's Sky, which is a PS4, I believe it's exclusive, it may not be, but it's a procedurally generated yeah, it's, galaxy. It's, it's exclusive, I remember what you're talking yeah. about, and it looks really cool. Recently they were discussing that if every living person on the planet were to play the game for one second, it, they st it still would not be enough time to explore the entire procedurally generated galaxy that the game has, which means when the game does launch, there will be planets that less than 1% of the population will ever be able to go and explore and see, which is quite incredible to me that that level of detail and and so on is, is possible these days in gaming. I love um, I love games that really aspire to go to some a level like that. Maybe not in terms of size, but combining a massive game world with procedurally generated aspects. So like, like a simple game, for an example, you can take Minecraft. Minecraft was such an excellent success, and Mojang has done so many things with it now, and unfortunately Microsoft owns it now. But um, it's it's the possibilities with Minecraft itself, you can generate a world based on a seat. Like, you can control the right. generation now. Like, there's a tool with uh, the latest release of 1.8 that you can actually control the generation and customize it, but it's still right. procedural based right. on 
in that seed, I think you can include up to a 64-bit number. And for those of you that aren't familiar with like the length of a number when it comes to that, that's basically, let me see, I think it's four trillion. I don't know, it's gigantic. It's, yeah, it's, it's huge. So. Um, well, I, because I have to head to work, unfortunately, we do <laughs> need to wrap this episode up. It was, But I will say it's been a very productive episode. Um, it's it's kind of gone into some of the things that you know I've, I've seen going on so far that probably needs to be corrected. Um, things from cruddy, you know, overturned products. You mentioned this, Curtis. Yeah. Abu- abuse of the concept of microtransactions, pre-ordering. Right. Um, we also kind of went into corporate compliant uh, press, which right. to a point, and and other other things where um, consumers are just basically seen as money generators and nothing more. Um, to to now where you know some stuff is still going to continue. But if there was kind of a recession of sorts, it would probably help weed out some of the uh, some of the problematic companies and allow right. others to shine, which you've you've alluded to with indie developers. Right. I definitely think that you know indie development has a lot of potential. I mean, I, I don't know if it's really considered indie development, but you know that game company. Producing Journey and Flower and Flow has me so hooked I can't wait for the next thing that they put out. And who knows when that will be. Um, so, yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I think this was very, very productive. And hopefully we'll have more related topics on, on things like that in the future. Right. And I, I hear a console going off, don't I? Yeah, my PS4 woke up for some reason. I think I bumped the controller. <laughs> Yay! But um, what do you all want to talk about next time or down the road, just so we have a roadmap of sorts? Well, I would at some point love to do a, an episode dedicated to uh, Metal Gear Solid Five uh, because uh, I think it's an important topic in gaming history. Um so, given I'm currently playing for it, that's something we might want to consider two or three weeks down the road. Definitely not, you know, within the next few days. Because I'm, like I said, I put 40 hours into it, and I'm only 28% done. <laughs> I'm only on story mission 16, and I think there's like 100 story missions. So I've got quite a ways to go. Um, <laughs> but that's I would I would love to to sit down and do that. How about um, Curtis? This may be something that you would be interested in. I've been reading a lot lately and seeing a lot of updates on like Facebook and whatnot about the uh, Mars Curiosity rover. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The discovery water. of flowing water on Mars. Not not frozen water on the ice caps, but the flowing water on Mars. Right. I've been reading a lot about that. And I'd love to hear yeah. what they have to say on that and stuff like that. So maybe next week or the next couple yeah. weeks we could do something on that. Next week would be great for that, actually. Awesome. A week from today, perhaps? Um, yeah, I think Wednesday works for me. So. Okay. 
So basically, same bat time, same bat channel, all that good stuff. Basically, yeah. All right. Uh, and did, I did we ever do a GamerGate episode? Um, I I technically talked to had Phil Wesley on as a guest. We talked about it. Uh, Shaggy and I mentioned it. Um, Steve Kelly and I kind of sort of talked about corruption in terms of uh, media. It's been, it's kind of been talked about off and on. It's as far as I know, there's nothing new. So I don't think it's, you know, a big deal to do anything with that soon. Okay. I should disagree. But um, last week of October, I do have off, so that would be a good time to try to have all of us come together as well. Okay. Um, for for episode number one hundred, perhaps. Awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that'll be interesting having all four of us on there. <laughs> I don't think we would have done that. <laughs> that would be, yeah. be cool. That'd but be cool. Um, anyway, um, we've got to get going. Okay. Entertain yourself, educate yourself, empower yourself. Um, it was good having you on again, Curtis. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a while. <laughs> oh, yeah. 